previously on Conspiracy Land. I had a meeting with Mohammed bin Salman in his office, and we're sitting there, and I said, Your Royal Highness, who is going to be the next king of Saudi Arabia? You or Naif? The next few months was one of the most aggressive influence operations that I experienced in eight years. Oh, you know, MBN, he's old, you know, we need a young man, and he, you know, this guy's gonna modernize the kingdom, and... They threatened to humiliate him, and so they walk him out of the room into a brightly lit room with cameras where MBS is waiting, and they announce the resignation right there. It's a deeply disturbing story, allegations of compromised Twitter employees willing to access and steal the private information of users who were seen as critics of the Saudi government. There's a direct trail of blood drops from this hack to the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. May no free pen be broken and no Twitter users silenced in the era of the crown prince. That's Jamal's first tweet after months of silence. Sophia, if you could, please wake up and say hello to everybody. Good afternoon. My name is Sophia, and I am the latest and greatest robot from Hanson Robotics. Thank you for having me here. You look happy. I'm always happy when surrounded by smart people, who also happens to be rich and powerful. It was October 18th, 2017, and New York Times columnist Andrew Ross Sorkin was in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia interviewing a robot on stage for a conference informally dubbed Davos in the Desert. And we just learned, Sophia, that you have been now awarded what is going to be the first Saudi citizenship for a robot. Oh, I would thank very much the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. I am very honored and proud for this unique distinction. This is historical to be the first robot in the world to be recognized with a citizenship. If you're looking for a vivid tableau of the power of Saudi money, you wouldn't have to look much further than Davos in the desert. Over the course of a few days that fall, the titans of American finance, business, and government, Steve Schwartzman of Blackstone, Larry Fink of BlackRock, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin, Hollywood super agent Ari Emanuel, all flocked to Jeddah for a grand conference on the future, organized by the Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, or MBS. So he's got, you know, the world's biggest money managers are there, politicians, Ari Emanuel, you know, the, the Hollywood agent. And they come to this thing because they see it's like the world's biggest pot of money and like he's promising to invest it everywhere. That's Justin Check, who covered the event for the Wall Street Journal and co-authored the book about MBS, Blood and Oil. Among the notable events at the conference was a video about Neom, a giant $500 billion super city of the future, a monument to MBS's grandiose vision for his country, or as others saw it, a graphic example of his megalomania. A startup the size of a country that will change the way we live and work forever. This is the blank page you need to write humanity's next chapter, Neon. So this is something that, that he announces as the world's most ambitious project. He says he's going to spend $500 billion building like a city-state 
on this part of the Red Sea. And it's going to have like flying robot taxis. And there's going to be a center uh, to study ways to indefinitely prolong human life. And there's going to be an island with robot dinosaurs. And, you know, they announced it as as his his sort of moonshot project. Uh, speaking of moonshots, they're also going to have an artificial moon where they ha- use a bunch of like drones with lights. So every night they could have a full moon if they'd like. So, you know, there's a bunch of ridiculous stuff. But Neom also had a chilling undertone. He decides... In this place, he's going to build his own new vision of Saudi Arabia from scratch. And it's a place where people don't just come from Saudi Arabia. They come from all over the world to flock there. It's got streamlined courts and business rules, and everything reports up to him. He appoints every judge. All the administrative capabilities report up to him. And there's going to be this 100% surveillance state where everything is on film. So you can kind of see everything all at once and kind of get capture criminals before they commit the crimes. And then, once the financial wizards and the investment advisors and the politicians left, a new crackdown. Early in November, something happened that many Saudis would have thought unimaginable. From their homes across the country, dozens of the kingdom's richest men, including members of the royal family, were swept up and detained in the gilded cage of Riyadh's Ritz-Carlton Hotel. The news of the Ritz-Carlton Roundup hit like a thunderbolt. MBS was making his biggest play yet, imprisoning scores of his country's elites, including Jamal's one-time patron, the billionaire investor Prince Al-Walid. They were reportedly subjected to brutal interrogations and torture, and it was all under the stern direction of his right-hand man, Saud al-Qahtani, forcing them to confess to corruption charges and to turn over their wealth. Jamal had plans that night to join his friend Maggie Salem of the Guitar Foundation at the Kennedy Center to see the Book of Mormon when he urgently texted her, Skipping play, have to write something. It's a seismic event for Saudi, he wrote in one of hundreds of text messages between them that Salem shared with me. Yes, I agree, she wrote back, will help. And she did, offering ideas, phrases he should use, suggestions about how Saudis needed to speak up about MBS's excesses. The next night, at 7.29 p.m., the column popped on the Washington Post website. The headline, Saudi Arabia's crown prince is acting like Putin. Khashoggi's column that night underscored his determination to speak out and push back against his country's hot-headed and vindictive crown prince. But as he did so, his personal life got increasingly messy, with two women vying for his affections. And as they did, the threats against Khashoggi got ever nastier, and the surveillance of him and his associates, and even one of his lovers, ever more menacing. I'm Michael Isikoff, and welcome back to Conspiracy Land, The Secret Lives and Brutal Death of Jamal Khashoggi. This is Episode 7, A Tale of Two Women. As he settled into his new life in the United States, Jamal was finding his voice, becoming more outspoken and willing to connect and even collaborate with other critics of the Saudi regime. But cut off from his family and served with divorce papers by his wife back home, he was also lonely. So he turned to friends like Mohammed Sultan, the young Egyptian dissident, to help him meet women. 
So he, he was asking you to set him up with yeah. women he yeah. could date. Yeah. Right. He didn't know if he was ready. Obviously, it was really interesting because here was someone who's like my father's age that I was trying, who had been, you know, out of the dating game for so long. So I remember there was, there was someone, um, I actually have this text message exchange where he was like, uh, let me see if I can actually pull it up. It's, it's pretty, pretty, pretty funny. Um, so he's asking me, he's like, how to go about it? Question mark. Should I call her and ask her out to talk about democracy? Smiley face. <laughs> so I'm like, I like have a cracking up face and I'm like, it's like, you know, that's not the best pickup line, man. Like, you know, like, <laughs> you want to come yeah, talk about yeah, democracy yeah. <laughs> in the Mideast. Yeah. But yeah, it was, he, he had that, like, you know, obviously he was looking for that void to be filled, rightfully so. None of the women Mohammed Sultan hooked him up with worked out. But it was around this time that Jamal became reacquainted with an Egyptian flight attendant for Emirates Airline. Her name was Hanan al Atur. We was a twin. We have a same taste about everything. Like, for example, six o'clock afternoon, Jamal liked to, uh, to have a cup of tea with his cigar in a balcony. I love to have a cup of tea in this time. They had met nine years earlier when Jamal was getting an award at a conference in Dubai where Hanan lived. They had exchanged phone numbers and stayed in touch, sharing funny videos and favorite lines of Arabic poetry. They also shared their thoughts on Arab politics and the turmoil sweeping through the Mideast with the advent of the Arab Spring. From this moment, we start to communicate a lot, and I start to give him a feedback about any article he writes, and he loves it when I tell him. Hanan would have layovers in Washington a couple of times a month while working flights from Dubai. By March, she and Jamal had become something of an item. Late that month, Jamal brought her as his date to a birthday dinner for himself that his friend Maggie Salem had organized. And shortly thereafter... I had some days off in the beginning of April, and I came and I, I did stay with him. Then Jamal, in 3rd of April, he gifted me the first ring, engagement ring. He engaged me. An engagement ring. Engagement ring, yes. So he gives you this, uh, did he ask you to marry him? He did. And he put me, if you go to his account in Amazon, in same day he put a, a flower bucket for me, a big roses one, same day. Tell me about his marriage proposal. He said, you sure uh, you want to be with me? You sure you you want to be complete your life with me? I said yes, Jamal. He said because I have a very heavy luggage, I don't have a stable life. I said I'm with you, Jamal. I believe in you, and I'm encourage encourage you, and I love you because the way you are. I share with you whatever you have. I said I'm very proud. I'm very happy, Jamal. Definitely, it's it's something great for me to be happened. God love me, Jamal, to be with you. When I interviewed Hanan, she proudly showed me one of two rings that he had gotten for her and the copy of a receipt showing he had paid $2,000 for one of them from a jewelry store in Northern Virginia. She also turned over sometimes gushy text exchanges. You will be the happiest bride, Jamal wrote her that spring. And in another text, I throw myself at you, kiss you, and delight you. I take out a watch or a necklace or perfume I bought for you to delight you. Yet many of Jamal's friends, even Mohammed Sultan, who had been trying to set him up on dates, 
didn't even know of the relationship, much less their marriage performed by a local imam a few months later. It was, we should point out, a religious ceremony, not a civil one, and the couple never got a Virginia State marriage license. I asked Maggie Salem, one of the few who did know about their relationship. Was he in love with her? I think in his way he was. I think Jamal had a huge heart. I, I know he loved her. You know, love is, you know, I'm not Shakespeare. <laughs> love is many different things with many different people. So, yes, he loved her. I, I would not say otherwise. Did you know about the um, wedding? I didn't know about the wedding. I didn't even know about Khadija. So he never, even after he had gotten married at the Islamic ceremony, he no. never mentioned no. it? No, never mentioned it. If somebody sits across from you when you're interviewing people about Jamal and tells you that Jamal told them everything, they're 100% lying to you. Jamal compartmentalized. He told different people certain things about his life he gave nobody a full view of his life or shared all of the information in his life he kept all of it with himself and he gave different people the things that they needed to know so i had no idea about hanan perhaps that's understandable jamal excoriated for his political views by his saudi tormentors wanted to keep his private life exactly that private but what's more than a little creepy is that the Saudis and their allies in the UAE where Hanan worked did know about it, as Hanan discovered one night in May. She was flying back to Dubai when UAE security officials took her aside. I went back from this flight. As soon as I arrived to Dubai, the intelligence took me. After they took me, they took all devices. They came, they came to my house, they searched, they took, but I didn't understand what's happening, why they taken me. I just comply with them. Then they start to investigate with me, who's a journalist, you know, and this. And then Jamal sent a message. Then they start talking about Jamal. Do you think they knew about your relationship with Jamal and that's why they detained you and started questioning you? Definitely. How did they know about your relationship with Jamal? I don't know. Did you tell Jamal about this? I did, in my way. What was his reaction? He got very scared. Hanan says the Emirati security agents took her passport and detained her for 10 days for questioning, grilling her time and again about Jamal, scouring her messages with him on her phone before finally letting her go. Here's Maggie Salem again. The, the consequences of them having a relationship he was clearly being surveilled. She was being surveilled because of him. And I mean, you just think about that. As long as I've worked in the region, it's just kind of, it still blows my mind. I don't know why. As the Emiratis, no doubt at the Saudis' request, were tracking Hanan and her relationship with Jamal, the newly minted crown prince, MBS, was engaged in another one of his charm offensives in the United States. He visited the White House for the remarkable meeting we told you about in episode two, the one where President Trump boasted about all the weapon systems the Saudis were buying from American defense contractors. The president displayed big poster boards of the weapons deals that had been specially prepared by the Commerce Department. 
889 million, 63 million, and that's uh, for various artillery. The C-130 airplanes, the Hercules, great plane, $3.8 billion. The Bradley vehicles, that's the tanks, $1.2 billion. And it really means uh, many, many jobs. We're talking about over 40,000 jobs in the United States. We really have a great friendship, a great relationship. So it's a great honor to have you and your representatives here. Crown Prince, thank you very much. Thank you for being here. And as he did so, MBS beamed, a broad smile across his face, clearly enjoying the spectacle of a president so appreciative of Saudi largesse. Thank you, Mr. President. Actually, the relation between Saudi Arabia and the rest of America, it's an old relation. We are the oldest ally of the rest of America and the Middle East. Right. Uh, more than 80 years uh, of alignments and big interest. And the foundation of the relation, it's really huge and really deep in uh, different issue. We know that today, the relation, it's the cause of more, uh, more than 4 million jobs in the U.S. But MBS did much more during this trip than bask in the glow of a grateful president. Thankful for all the warplanes, munitions, missiles, and other military equipment the Saudis were buying from the United States to pursue their bloody war in Yemen. He was also meeting with the chieftains of Silicon Valley, including Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey, whose company MBS had just allegedly infiltrated with his spies, as well as the media luminaries who touted him as the reformer he wanted to be seen as in the West. With stops in New York, Los Angeles, and Silicon Valley, Prince Mohammed is spreading his message of reforming Saudi Arabia from a closed ultra-conservative petrostate to one that's open to business and eager for investment. It was a message that got a surprisingly favorable reception from the heads of think tanks like Frederick Kemp, president of the Atlantic Council, which for years had been receiving Saudi funding. He is the best ambassador possible for all the changes he's implementing in Saudi Arabia and the changes he wants to implement. And prominent opinion leaders like New York Times columnist Tom Friedman. You know, the thing that I I said about Mohammed bin Salman, this is my third time talking to him, is that he's more McKinsey than Wahhabi, number one. And um, if he didn't exist, the system would have had to invent him, okay? This country was going down. The system had to throw someone like this up. But overshadowed by the shower of praise for the young reformer was a clampdown that was growing ever harsher and more ruthless by the day. Another crackdown on human rights in one of the most authoritarian states in the world. At least nine activists have been arrested in Saudi Arabia for championing women's rights and free speech. That spring, a group of women activists, including the wildly popular and charismatic Lujain al-Wathul, who we told you about in episode one, were arrested and detained. Among the criminal charges against them, talking to foreign journalists. Jamal was outraged. I have never witnessed such a draconian response to anything as innocuous as simply speaking with foreign journalists and officials, he wrote in a Washington Post column on May 21st, 2018. Jamal continued, religious fanaticism that had tarnished Saudi Arabia's image for decades has given way to a new and perhaps more pernicious fanaticism, a cult of blind loyalty to our leader. This is a Faustian bargain that I will not make. A few days after it ran, Jamal's friend, Maggie Salem, texted him with a gentle reminder. You should have your condo swept for devices, she wrote. It likely was far too late.
At this point, it's worth revisiting Jamal's relationship with Maggie Salem and raising the question about what MBS and his henchman, Saud al-Qahtani, might have known about it. Salem clearly viewed Jamal as a close friend, like a big brother, she says, and she played a large role in helping to shape and edit his columns for the Washington Post. At various moments, she described herself as his assistant, reviewing drafts of his columns, suggesting changes, at times urging him to make his criticisms of the crown prince even tougher. So do you have time to write it, he replied to one of her suggestions. But both she and Jamal knew their collaboration was problematic, given that Salem was then the executive director of the Guitar Foundation, a nonprofit funded by the Qatari monarchy that was locked in a cold war with the Saudis. And we should keep our relationship discreet. When you write to New York Times and they Google you to find out that you work for Guitar, Jamal had written her on WhatsApp. He then added for emphasis a picture of the Guitari flag and an exclamation point. It could hurt, he added. We have to be strategic, not impulsive. And, and we both knew. We both knew that we were in dangerous territory, I'd say. We both knew it. And I kind of thought, you know what? At the end of the day, I'm a fucking American. I have a right to help a friend from another country. But Maggie and Jamal had no idea of just how broad and sweeping Saudi surveillance had become. Omar Abdulaziz was Jamal's new friend in Canada and a confederate in combating MBS's digital repression. Just a few weeks after Jamal's column about the women activists, Omar got a text message about an upcoming delivery on an order from Amazon slated for June 28, 2018. To manage delivery, the text told him to click on a link. Omar, not thinking anything of it, did so. To this day, he can't believe he did. It was from Amazon or something like that, or from UPS, or this is your tracking number. So I clicked. So from there, they, they hacked my phone. The hackers were using tools developed by something called the NSO Group, staffed with veterans of Unit 8200, the Signals Intelligence Division of the Israeli Defense Forces, Jerusalem's version of America's National Security Agency. The firm had developed a highly sophisticated form of spyware known as Pegasus that exploited flaws in Apple's operating system, allowing hackers who purchased the technology to penetrate targeted mobile phones and devices all over the planet. Publicly, the NSO group insisted it sold Pegasus only to governments for legitimate law enforcement and counterterrorism targets. But according to cyber sleuth Ron Diebert, Pegasus was also being used for more sinister purposes. It was, he says, being sold by the NSO group to repressive actors, from authorities in Kazakhstan to the Saudi cyber snoopers in Riyadh, overseen by MBS's henchman, Saud al-Qahtani. So we first encountered this Israeli company, NSO Group, in August 2016, when a human rights defender in the UAE, uh, Ahmad Mansour, received a couple of text messages on his iPhone. Uh, they purported to show evidence of torture in Emirati prisons, the type of thing that he might be tempted to click on and open. But uh, he wisely sent them to us for analysis. Diebert is the head of Citizen Lab 
a cyber research center at the University of Toronto, which was the first to discover the existence of Pegasus and the hack on Omar's phone that summer. His investigation took the story of Jamal Khashoggi off in a whole new direction and opened up a window into a fast-growing global trade in the tools of cyber espionage. The NSO Group, he says, provided command and control computer servers to its customers that could then be used to unleash Pegasus on its unsuspecting targets, disguising its origins through a layer of proxy computers in the cloud. It's kind of a, a dark, shadowy world of, of espionage going on. So we were aware of NSO Group. We had some fragments of evidence of their infrastructure. As soon as we downloaded the spyware, there are artifacts in how the spyware operates. We reverse engineered it, first of all. We started to develop fingerprints for how the spyware communicates over the internet. Debert and his Canadian cyber sleuths were able to trace communications of NSO Group's spyware from command and control servers in Riyadh straight into their own backyard. And in the summer of 2018, we realized that the Saudi operator group had infected a device in Canada. So at this point, the Citizen Lab cyber sleuths started reaching out to known Saudi dissidents in Canada, including Jamal's friend Omar Abdulaziz. And they were armed with an intriguing clue. We could see the device checking in from two different internet service providers at different times of the day, one in the evening being this very obscure internet service provider. Omar is a student at Bishop's University, and it was summertime, so school is not in session. He would connect from his ISP at home, which is a large internet service provider, Videotron. And then every evening, like clockwork, he would go to Bishop's University to the gym where he would connect to the small internet service provider. So those two data points for us established absolutely that Omar was the target. In early August, Citizen Lab informed Omar of its discovery. So when Citizen Lab shows you this, mm -hmm. what's going through your mind? So simply, you know, by using that tool, they had the ability to see, to read, to listen, like... Simply, they were controlling my phone. Everything, everything. You immediately thought of Jamal. Yes. Was he your first call? Uh, uh, yes, I do, believe, I, I do believe it was the first call. Omar used a burner phone to make that call. I told him, please, uh, someone is calling you from a different number. Please respond. He said, well, excuse me? I said, just, just answer that phone. <laughs> so... So it, then it was me. I said, okay, Abu Salah, uh, it's me, Omar, from a different number. But uh, I think that they hacked my phone. He said, oh, gosh, may God help us. I hope that they're not hacking my phone, too. So follow the dots on this one. Thanks to the spies the FBI said they had recruited inside Twitter, the Saudis have been able to track down the mobile phone numbers and other personal details about Omar and scores of other Saudi dissidents living in exile in the United States, Canada, and Western Europe. Then, armed with Pegasus digital spyware, they could penetrate those phones and watch in real time everything they were saying to each other. This included 400 WhatsApp messages Omar and Jamal had exchanged, some of which had stinging comments about MBS. The more victims he eats, the more he wants, Khashoggi wrote in one message he sent to Omar in May, just after a group of Saudi activists had been arrested. He is like a beast Pac-Man, 
The Saudis had also learned what Jamal and Omar were up to, a scheme to expose MBS's repression and counter Al-Qahtani's digital army of Twitter trolls. They would send hundreds of foreign SIM cards to dissidents back home so they could tweet without being traced. Jamal pledged an initial $30,000 to implement the scheme and then wired $5,000 to Omar as a first installment. The plan, as they discussed it, was to create an army of electronic bees to do battle with Katani's flies. But all the while, they were leaving a digital trail of breadcrumbs for their Saudi adversaries. When Ron Debert finally read the WhatsApp messages Jamal and Omar were exchanging, I was like, oh my God, this is damning, because they were both discussing like very provocative plans to counter the Saudi regime. They had discussed exchanging money to do this, so Jamal had actually transferred some funds to Omar, and they were, of course, calling Mohammed bin Salman all sorts of names, personal names. Of course, the name-calling went both ways. On his laptop, Jamal kept screenshots of attacks and death threats he was receiving from Katani's trolls on Twitter. The antidote to Khashoggi is for his head to be cut off with a blind sword, read one. Can you just die and relieve people from your dirty face, read another. And then there was this. Khashoggi, it read, works for two sides and has been relying on Qatar and Turkey's money. He can only escape, it added, through physical elimination. A quick note here. I reached out to NSO Group about all of this, and a spokesman emailed back that the company categorically denies that its technology was used to target Jamal Khashoggi. But the spokesman also wouldn't comment on whether its Pegasus spyware was sold to the Saudi Arabian government, and emphasized NSO Group has little control over what any of its government clients might have done with its powerful technology once they purchased it. Quote, we do not have access to targets or any data collected, the spokesman said. As these events were unfolding, Jamal was drawing ever closer to friendly figures in Turkey. It was his family's ancestral homeland, from which his forefathers had migrated to Arabia hundreds of years earlier. It was undoubtedly another red flag for his Saudi persecutors. The country's Islamist president, Recep Erdogan, who Jamal had interviewed at least three times, was emerging as a powerful regional rival to MBS and the Saudi royal family. Erdogan was also an ally of the much-feared Muslim Brotherhood and the Qatari regime in Doha. In fact, when MBS had imposed a blockade on Qatar the year before, Erdogan leapt to Doha's defense, even offering troops to defend the tiny oil-rich nation from Saudi aggression. By the summer of 2018, these two Middle Eastern strongmen were locked in an increasingly acrimonious geopolitical struggle. And Jamal was right in the middle just as his personal life was about to become even more complicated. In early May, Jamal flew to Istanbul to speak at a conference on Middle East security organized by the Al-Shark Forum, a think tank funded with Qatari money. During a break, he was approached by a young woman, an academic, who wanted to interview him. And then I said, hi, Mr. Jamal. <laughs> I shocked, by the way. <laughs> Tite Chengez was 36 years old, 24 years Jamal's junior. She had been raised in a conservative Islamic family near Turkey's far eastern border, attending a religious school before getting her undergraduate degree at Istanbul University. She later went to school in Cairo and became fluent in Arabic, 
under a Turkish government-funded program for aspiring scholars. Like many of her generation, Hatice had been inspired by the Arab Spring. And when she spotted Jamal at the conference, she was starstruck. He's the most important journalist and name and thinker in the in region. So fair to say, you were pretty excited when you had a chance to meet him. Yes, absolutely. After doing the interview with Atiche, Jamal flew back to Washington. After filing his column about the arrest of the women activists, he attended a Ramadan dinner at the Turkish embassy. Then he was back in Istanbul and getting together with Hatice. It was, I can say, the start to relationship, the special relationship between us. Jamal even came with a gift for her birthday. What was the gift? It was a necklace and earrings, but very special, yes. So are you talking every day at this point? Yes, of course. Every day? Every day. More than two or three or four times, we were speaking, talking, every day. And soon enough, there was talk of marriage. On one of his trips to Istanbul, Jamal began exploring how to apply for Turkish citizenship and buying an apartment where he and Atice could live. But there was, to say the least, a bit of a problem. He had told Atice nothing about Hanan, the woman he had married in a religious ceremony in northern Virginia just a few months earlier. Nor, for that matter, had he told Hanan anything about Atice. My sister is here in Istanbul, he texted Hanan in mid-July, seeming to explain the extra time he was spending in Turkey. Things got more than a little awkward when Jamal met with Atice's father, a businessman, who began grilling the man who wanted to marry his daughter about his intentions and his background, especially about whether he had any other wives. My uh, father knows very well the Arabs get married more than one at the same time. And then he asked him, are you sure you are not married? It's a little bit um, sensitive point for my father. Right. And what did Jamal tell him? Jamal told I'm not married. I divorced. So? Jamal doesn't need to lie to anyone. When I met with Atice, I asked her about his religious marriage to Hanan. Had Jamal ever mentioned to you what he told me in in the time he when he proposed me he confirmed me there is a no one in his life yes he confirmed me that after much hesitation Hatice's father gave his blessing Jamal began exploring how to retrieve his divorce records from Saudi Arabia proving he was legally a single man so he could get a Turkish license to marry Hatice. But even as he did so, he kept a sharp-eyed focus on the increasingly harsh dictates of the de facto ruler of his native country. We can hear this in one of his last interviews, conducted by a Palestinian journalist working for Newsweek. Deep inside him is an old-fashioned tribal leader. Why Mohammed bin Salman doesn't see that part as before? Because it will limit his, his authoritarian rule. And he, and, and he doesn't want that. He doesn't see there's a need for that. He wants to enjoy the, 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 the fruit of both worlds. Modernity and Silicon Valley and uh, cinemas and everything. And at the same time, he wants also to rule like how his grandfather ruled Saudi Arabia. 
Yeah, it, well, that doesn't work. You can't have it both ways. The interviewer, Ruba Jubrial, then asked Jamal if he could have it both ways. He had, for years, been a loyal Saudi, a longtime regime spokesman who still wanted to be a player with a chip in the game. And yet he was now an outspoken regime critic living in exile. But Jamal ignored her, continuing to keep the focus on MBS, bemoaning his pampered treatment from Western elites. Can you have it both ways? Can you call yourself, can you? I don't think he can. So first of all, there is no political movement in Saudi Arabia that could pressure him, number one. And the world is happy with him. Do you see anybody in America who is calling for uh, putting pressure on Mohammed bin Salman? I'm sure the Americans are not going to apply a pressure to Mohammed bin Salman unless a, a, a true crisis happens in Saudi Arabia. Just to emphasize those last words, the Americans are not going to apply pressure on MBS, Jamal said, unless there is a true crisis with Saudi Arabia, which, of course, there was about to be. On our next and last episode of Conspiracy Land, shockwaves reverberate in the U.S. government in the aftermath of Jamal Khashoggi's murder. When that footage kept playing, all of us were looking at each other, thinking, you know, and saying, does this mean they premeditated this? Because this is a disaster. A cover-up of the conspiracy begins. The explanation given by Saudi Arabia just do not add up. It's almost, uh, it's taking us for a bunch of idiots, to be honest, to suggest that they lost the body. And the corrupt bargain behind the U.S.-Saudi alliance is laid bare. If we abandoned Saudi Arabia, it would be a terrible mistake. They're buying hundreds of billions of dollars worth of things from this country. It was a low moment, in my opinion, as far as the moral leadership of the United States of America. The question of how to deal with MBS, the de facto ruler of Saudi Arabia, looms large. I'm saying he's the U.S.'s SOB. If somebody's got a different idea of how to deal with Saudi Arabia, then, then let's hear it. And while pinning the blame for Jamal's murder on MBS, President Biden's team decides against rocking the boat. The relationship with Saudi Arabia is bigger than any uh, one individual. We remain committed to the defense uh, of the kingdom. So what we've done by the actions that we've taken is really not to rupture the relationship, but to recalibrate it. That's next on Conspiracy Land, Episode 8, The Anatomy of a Cover-Up. A correction, in this episode, I said Maggie Mitchell-Salem had been the executive director of the Qatar Foundation. In fact, she was executive director of the Qatar Foundation International, an affiliated but separate organization. Conspiracy Land is a production of Skullduggery, the Yahoo News podcast I co-host every week with Yahoo News editor-in-chief Dan Clydman and the Brennan Center's Victoria Bassetti. In putting together this series, special thanks to Suzanne Smalley for yeoman's research and tracking down sometimes elusive interview subjects. And as with our past Conspiracyland productions, a huge shout out to the folks at Long Story Short, executive producer Bob Ewell, associate producer Emily Russell, and editor Andrew Strassel, with audio recording and mixing by Aaron Hoffman and Evan Sevilla, and research by Josh Hall and Belinda Shaw. And of course, LSS chief Jessica Stewart, None of this could have happened without their invaluable work.